0: good morning everybody it's good Good to see you good to be with you in this space thank you uh, Jalen and team for uh, creating uh, helping to create a space for meeting for connection with God with one another with the truth that we've been declaring together and uh, this invitation to just locate our stories in God's bigger story As we've been uh, walking through this series on financial imagination, uh, and I've been facilitating a table group alongside it, uh, I feel like I've been immersed in images and ideas and like conversation around money during this whole month of November. And I I don't know how much of this series you've been around for. I know that there's about 15 of us in the table group. Um, Some of you are probably here for the very first time today, and so you may not feel similarly immersed, Um, but for those that are... um, How's it going? How's it feeling? To, to be thinking and talking about money. Um, I don't know if you feel like I do, but I, whatever the case is, we get going today, I want to share a couple of images of what money is capable of doing. Does anyone happen to know, just kind of offhand, what the most expensive building in the world is? Anyone know? Just looking for hands. No. It's, uh, according to one source, the most expensive building on the planet is the Abraj al-Bait Towers. This is the property of the Saudi Arabian government, and it's located in the country's holy city of Mecca. It was constructed in a bid to both modernize the city and also cater to its annual influx of pilgrims. The central and tallest tower, which you see in this image, has a a four-faced clock, which is the largest in the the whole world. Um, Some of the features of the building include a five-star hotel a large 10,000-capacity prayer room. It's a little larger than Japanese hall. Uh, Two heliports, an over 1,000-stall parking garage, a five-story shopping mall, and a conference center. The entire complex is capable of occupying 100,000 people. What was the cost of construction? $15 billion. This is one picture of what money can do. On the other hand, so is this. This is one of the largest slums in the world. Dharavi, India, in the heart of Mumbai, its estimated population is between 600,000 and 1 million. Dharavi was featured in the Oscar-winning movie, Slumdog Millionaire. As people continue to migrate away from rural areas and into cities, the number of people who live in slums and shanty towns and informal settlements are skyrocketing. According to the UN's special report on adequate housing, there are some 200,000 of these kinds of communities around the world. And that number is growing. So even before the economic crisis of 2008, about a third of all city dwellers live in slums that may grow in size by up to a billion more people within the next 20 years. So this too is a picture of what money has done. I was Listening to an On Being podcast this past week, and the guest who is on it summed up the disparity of our global economy about as well as I've heard it anywhere. Part of this quote is on your handout this morning. It goes like this, I have seen the power of the market, but when it becomes the only language, when it becomes the only way of thinking about the right thing to do, it leaves us with a very impoverished sense of how to live together. It's good for creating wealth and creating things and building things, but it's not a guide. It's not a useful vocabulary for living together. If Mr. Girdardas is correct, then the question becomes, what's a better guide? What what might be a more useful vocabulary? I often feel overwhelmed in the world of finance because I'm a pastor and not an economist. I feel my own inadequacy to put speech to what I'm seeing or what I think I'm observing. I, I feel very much like a beginner. I've had a recurring sense in tackling this theme in a sermon like there are people who could do a better job at this than I could. I feel feel a heightened awareness of my own inconsistency when it comes to what I think I believe about fiscal responsibility and how I sometimes act. I feel embarrassment about how the Christian church throughout most of the so-called first world, a community I'm part of, has historically managed its assets. And yet here I am, and here we are, and here God is, in the last week of our probably way too short series on financial imagination. The series has been motivated by a number of factors, one being that money, or the lack of it, is one of the leading causes of stress and anxiety in our culture. We need a ton of help in thinking better about money, not only managing what we have, but what our money does, and and whom it affects, both where and how. And another reason we're doing this series is that Jesus talked about money way more than the church tends to. Our various economic issues and tasks, wealth and poverty and saving and debt and investing and giving and stewarding are things that touch not only us but the entire global community. We're in desperate need of fresh financial imagination, maybe even revolution. So to respond to the question we posed a moment ago with another couple of questions, how might the scriptures help guide and offer vision for our flourishing as a human family? How might we direct both our God-given imaginations and our resources for the common good? Let's hold those questions. I invite you to hold those questions with me as we pray and uh, open up the scriptures this morning. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge this morning, first of all, uh, that you are king. We celebrate that you, Jesus, are drawing all things to yourself, that our our world is headed toward the renewal of all things. You enthroned in our praise, in our lives, in our worship. We acknowledge that you as king uh, own and you have made all things, you've created all things, and all things are yours. We are yours. All of our resources are yours. And so we come with uh, with open hands today to discover how your spirit might be leading us, the questions you're inviting us to ask, the direction you're inviting us to take, the vision that you want us to take on. So we ask for your help today. Give us a sense of uh, lightness and even playfulness as we encounter uh, some Deep and sometimes heavy questions. So we just trust you to be present to us, speaking to us, illuminating the scriptures for us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So the text that we want to kind of drop anchor in this morning, and we're gonna we're gonna drop anchor in a few other places as well. But Jeremiah twenty nine verses four to seven is the primary place that we're going to we're gonna camp. So I invite you to hear the scripture. Again, if you have a chair Bible close to you, the page number is up here on the screen, and I invite you to turn there if you would like to. So reading from that text, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the word of the Lord. So, this is a moment of uprooting in Israel's history. They'd been carried by God into exile in Babylon, a foreign superpower. Up to this point, Jerusalem had been their home, right? Jerusalem was essential to their identity as the people of God. The city was to be a dwelling place for God's name, a model urban society that showed the world what human life under God's administration could be. But what happens when Israel goes to live in the cruel, bloodthirsty city of Babylon? How are the people of God meant to relate to the great cities of the earth now? So a huge part of the Babylonian Empire's strategy was to strip conquered peoples of their spiritual identity. So in this case, Judah had been defeated, deported, and Babylon's hope was that the children and grandchildren of the Israelites would assimilate and eventually lose their identity as a distinct people. That's the strategy. Some within Israel saw what was coming and for good reason feared it. So for good reason, yeah. And so one such, one such person was the false prophet Hananiah. So seeing this coming, he couldn't imagine Israel living in Babylon long term. So he dishonestly prophesied that God would bring them back to their beloved city of Jerusalem within two years. It's just temporary, guys. Just hang tight. Two years. God's got your back. We will be back home. Now, had the exiles followed Hananiah's advice, they would have remained disengaged in Babylon, waiting indefinitely for God's intervention. So instead, what happens? Well, through the prophet Jeremiah, God upends both the Babylonian strategy and the false prophet's counsel. On one hand, God tells the people to increase in number there. Do not decrease. Retain your distinct community and grow together. But God also tells them, to settle down and to engage the life of the city build homes and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce also get married have kids have generations of kids flourish in every direction and verse 7 seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you into exile pray to the lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper this is a clear call to intentionality of place, of commitment to a particular locale. It's a call to holistic, communal, interdependent living within that place. The call isn't plant gardens and export what they produce. It's eat what they produce. In other words, don't just multiply your tribe in a ghetto within the city. Use your resources to benefit everyone living there. So this may be one of the clearest And best articulations in scripture that God's people are to be those who seek the common good. So no confusion about what God's asking here, right? It's pretty clear. Are you with me on that? Not only is there 100% clarity, it seems to me that this word is as timely today as it was when it was first delivered. One writer put it like this. The great crisis among us is the crisis of the common good. The sense of community solidarity that binds us all in a common destiny. We face a crisis about the common good because there are powerful forces at work among us to resist the common good. To violate community solidarity and to deny a common identity. Or common destiny, sorry. Mature people, at their best, are people who are committed to the common good that reaches beyond private interests. Transcends sectarian commitments and offers Human solidarity. We're feeling this, aren't we? We'll come back and uh, consider our context shortly, but let's stay with the Old Testament story a bit longer. How did the people of God get to where they were? I think one way to think of Israel's story is as a tale of two economies. There's Pharaoh's economy and God's economy. So Israel begins its core memory in the grip of Pharaoh's Egypt. Egypt. Think of ancient pharaoh as the archetypal enemy of the common good, an agent of immense power who could not get beyond his covetous interest to even ponder the common good. So pharaoh embodies a complex system of monopoly, creates enormous wealth, but it also generates anxiety that affects every part of the system. So for example, pharaoh's Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient world. Already in Genesis 12, we learn that pharaoh had ample food and could supply the entire world. Now, there was a famine in the land, Genesis 12, so Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. So it made sense that the lush, fertile Nile Valley should produce bread. So it was a need for bread, for food, that drove Abraham to the place of security and sufficiency. Now, you are ready for some crazy irony? Pharaoh, the leader of the superpower, has bad dreams. He may present as being completely in control all day every day, but when he's asleep at night with his guard down and his competence relaxed, he has nightmares. The one with everything has dreams of insecurity. Genesis 41 has one example. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I've never seen such ugly cows in the whole land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk, after them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. So Pharaoh is desperate to find out the meaning of the dream, but no one in his, the intelligence community of his empire can decode the secret message. So is a last resort scenario. So he summons this unknown Israelite from prison. And according to this ancient narrative, the uncredentialed Israelite can decode what the empire cannot discern. So Joseph the interpreter immediately gets what's going on. This nightmare is about scarcity. The one with everything dreams of deficiency. The cows and the shocks of grain anticipate years of famine when no food will be produced. So Pharaoh receives the interpretation of his nightmare and immediately sets about, well, I've got to make some policy. Let's make some policy here. Joseph turns out to be not only a shrewd dream interpreter, but an able administrator who commits himself to Pharaoh's food policy. What is it? Food monopoly. In the ancient world, as in ours, food is a weapon and a tool of control. So, this is policy rooted in nightmare. What happens? The peasants, having no food of their own, come to Joseph, who is now a high ranking Egyptian. They pay their money in exchange for food so that Pharaoh's centralized government gets even richer. After the money is all taken, the peasants come again. They ask for food. And this time, Joseph, on behalf of Pharaoh, takes their cattle. It's what Karl Marx would have termed their means of production. In the next year, the third year, the peasants still need food, but they have no money and now no livestock. So they end up surrendering their freedom in exchange for food. Genesis 47, 19 says this, Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We with our land will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed, so that we may not may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. And the inevitable outcome, Joseph buys all the land for Egypt of Egypt for Pharaoh. And all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. It's a part of the Genesis story we don't often sink into. Slavery in the Old Testament happens because the strong work a monopoly over the weak. The economy is manipulated in the interest of concentrating wealth and power for the few at the expense of the many. Here's what the Pharaoh narrative reveals in terms of the common good. Bruggeman writes, those who are living in anxiety and fear, most especially fear of scarcity, have no time or energy for the common good. Anxiety is no adequate basis for the common good. Anxiety will cause the formulation of policy and exploitative practices that are inimical to the common good, a systemic greediness that precludes the common good. Are you hearing how timely and relevant this story is? How do we respond to the anxiety and the fear that surrounds us and maybe is even within us? There's this scarcity mentality that seems to run like a thread through every aspect of our economy. Is there an alternative? What might it look like to live into a different perspective, to live into something that looks less like Pharaoh's economy or not anything like Pharaoh's economy and more like God's economy? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. How do we walk in that? Peace and prosperity, the original Hebrew word for both of those words is actually the same. The interpreters, I think, probably thought for poetic reasons we ought to change it up a little bit, but also because the word is what, you know? Hearing it anywhere? Shalom, shalom, yes, shalom. A big word with a massive range of meaning. It's not only peace as the absence of conflict, And it's not only prosperity as material wealth, it's wholeness and flourishing in every direction. I just went through my concordance and I just listed a bunch of the words and phrases in scripture that carry some aspect of the meaning of shalom. Just sit with me with this list of words. It's amazing. Shalom means all right, means safe, good health, treaty of friendship, blessing, Contentment, goodwill, harmony, kind, kindness, order, peaceful relations, being satisfied, secure, soundness, trusted friends, unharmed, welcome, welfare, well-being, and yes. Shalom, God's yes. It's actually part of the name of the city that bore God's name, Jeru, Shalom. Shalom is God's idea. It's a pretty good one. So to seek peace and prosperity, to enter the reality of Shalom in all these respects and to work toward the common good, it seems to me, first requires a posture of generosity. Our hearts need to be drawn into a constant attentiveness to God's generosity towards us and in light of this, our responsibility toward others. Uh, table group this past week, we were looking at this idea of generosity and tithing and giving to the church that the church also may flourish and begin to bless and seek the good of the city. And we, we looked at our generosity litany, this, this litany that we use every single Sunday just before we collect the offering. And we discussed it around our tables. And one central question that we said or asked was, How do you feel about this litany? What resonates with you? And so there was a lively conversation all over the room keep working on this here. I wish I could have heard all of it, but I got to share a table with three amazing women from our community, Alexia, Crystal, and Kathy. Alexia is, I believe, teaching and artisan kids this morning. Otherwise, she would have been willing to offer her reflections as well, but Crystal and Kathy have agreed generously to come up and share briefly what stood out to them. So, Crystal, let's have you come first and just offer. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, come on up. Thanks for doing this. No
1: problem. Yeah, as Nelson mentioned, we got to dive deep into the generosity litany this week. And I think the first thing that stood out to me was when we get to that point in the service every week and we read this out loud together, I'm always struck by how much I need to hear this litany. Like, I really, I'm like, yes, I need to hear this. And I not only need to hear it, but I need to actually say it out loud. I need to participate in us as a community kind of proclaiming this. And as I've thought about it since Tuesday, there's two pieces that have really stood out for me and what is kind of happening for me in the act of reciting this together. And I think the first is remembering. Remembering what is true for us. Remembering that there is a different economy that we live in and that we live out and that there is a bigger, more imaginative Picture of prosperity available to us—it's it's so much bigger than the picture of prosperity that the world um, kind of puts on us. So that act of remembrance, remembering that together, because I think oftentimes driving home from here on a Sunday, I forget by the time I get to by the time I get to Gastown, and I want, and I'm, I'm already subject to those kind of inexhaustible desires that are all around. And the second is a reorientation: remembering this is true, and then reorienting myself throughout the week and needing to do it again and again and again if i believe this is true how do i orient my behaviors how do i orient myself um, in this notion of moving from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset and um claiming that to be true in the way that i act and kind of walk in the world so Mm -hmm. thanks thanks so
0: much crystal yeah kathleen will come up yeah let's say thanks Thanks, Kathy.
2: Um, for most of my adult life, uh, I've taken the um, give when I have and uh, attack, and and more accurately, give when I think I have extra. Um, and uh, it struck me at some point that um, the thing that makes Christianity particularly Christian and not just like humanist or philanthropic is um, the element of sacrifice and resurrected generative blessing. Um, so giving sacrificially is you know this, this very small but, but very tangible and critical way in which I participate in subverting these Really severely unjust and insidious capitalistic mythologies that tell us that everything that I have I is a function of me, and I'm the only one who deserves it and also that I never have enough And if I believe that then I will never give I will never give in a way. That's at least costly and um, yeah, it's so it's so it just strikes me how insidious it is, and how it gets right underneath our skin, such that it it changes kind of like Crystal was saying. It just change, changes the way that we act in every way, um, even from the moment we walk out those doors. And so to have this weekly reminder that giving sacrificially, uh, precisely as a function of faith and of costliness, is the only way to resurrection. And I. Deeply want resurrection for me, for mm. for us, and I know that 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 resurrect that resurrected generative blessing isn't just for me, but it is for the nations. And uh, yeah, so that that line in there to give without sacrifice—that is precisely the point. That is countercultural when it mm. when it gets costly. Mm. Um, so I yeah yeah.
0: Thanks, Kathy. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you see why I wanted to invite them and, and share that with you guys. It's so good. Table groups, y'all. Um, our Jeremiah text is a call to put down roots. I don't need this one, but maybe I do. Oh, my goodness. Our Jeremiah text is a call to put down roots and to become entwined with everything that goes on in the city. And so as we hear this, it's almost like I imagine God saying, "By the way, because you are inextricably linked, you need to think hard and well about the common good, because the common good is tied up with your good." And this principle serves as a tangible reminder that we are part of the same creation. We are responsible collectively for the good of the planet. It's the same principle that's meant to govern our life together as part of the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together; with it, if one is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now, it's quite possible that some of us in this room hear phrases like, if the city prospers, you too will prosper, and if one member suffers, all will suffer with it, as ridiculously obvious and self-evident. You're like, tell me something I don't know. (laughs) There may be even a majority of us who hear the words there is no peace without justice and say, absolutely, 100%, I can't argue with that. But you page through the scriptural narrative and you hear the story and you look at our story and the story we're living, it keeps needing to be said. Not necessarily because we're hard of hearing, although that might be the case. But it also needs repeating because we ourselves are often slow to action and resistant to change and we're part of larger systems and patterns that are highly resistant to the common good. So... We have had some encounter, hopefully a fresh encounter, with God's vision, with God's sense of direction, and all that's left is giving ourselves to some fresh practice. So we want to prepare to consider some practices having to do with recovering financial imagination for the common good, and I want to show you a short video of someone I've recently started to become challenged and inspired by, Joel Solomon. Uh, Anyone heard his name before, Joel Solomon? handful of us, a few of us. Um, He's a thought leader in the sustainable investment movement. He's an author. He's originally from Tennessee, but actually now resides here in Vancouver. And he uh, wrote a book called The Clean Money Revolution. What's clean money? Here's how the author defines it. Clean money is money aligned with a purpose beyond self-interest. Money for the commons. Money that makes the world better. Money regenerating ecosystems and engendering a healthy balance between people and planet, money that builds true security, long-term, safe, fair resilience. Clean money is a revolution and an evolution. It expands our view of finance from a bank balance network calculation or the name of a company in which you own stock. It goes beyond the surface. It opens the hood of the car, reads the ingredient label, pops open the laptop to see what's inside clean money thinks through where materials came from who assembled them and whether that process was just or unjust regenerative or destructive so let's let's hear a little bit more from Joel Solomon just a few minutes here
3: I believe that just like food is grown money is also grown that way and and I know that for me now, I need to have an understanding of where my money is and what damage it might be doing to people in place. And I'm not satisfied doing maximum damage to people in place in order to maximize my money. I don't, I don't really think it should be legal if I really get down to it. It's certainly not moral in my sense of morality. and. It's a gray, it's not a definitive, it's, it's just like health and, and well-being and happiness and love and these things. But the drive to understand where my money is, where it comes from, what the bank is doing with my money, what are stocks and bonds, um, what's in a retirement fund, and these kind of things are just as important as how was my food grown? How did it affect workers? How does it affect uh, the, the waterway systems as chemicals run off into the water? My purpose is to stimulate conversation and cause questions. So clean money or cleaner money would be examined money. Who's it affecting and how? Who and where is it affecting and how? And I feel a responsibility to ask those questions about money I'm involved with. And I believe that this is a message that can help a lot of people simply to just start asking those questions. If we think long-term and we get the best minds that there are to consider how we might reverse some of the trends that we've set in motion as humans, just, just innocently in many ways, just going about without knowing, We've created some messes. There's enough, there's more than enough money on the planet to solve all of it. But it requires will, and some thoughtfulness about the steps, and some fair sharing of resources. And it can be done, and it needs to be done. And that's why I'm gonna use the rest of my time here uh, in this life to attempt to uh, agitate, activate, uh, intrigue, and cause these questions to be discussed and talked about because we have a chance to save civilization, but we might lose it if we don't get serious about it. And we're gonna need younger people, but we need older people and we need everybody to figure out what our role is in it and how we can make a contribution so that we're actually being ancestors who did the right thing. Well, billionaire, okay, so billionaire is the judge. You're, you're, you're a good person if you manage to be a billionaire. Well, I didn't like that measurement. And so I tried to come up with other ways to be a billionaire. And I said, well, what if I'm a billionaire of meaning and purpose? What if I'm a billionaire of doing good deeds? What if I, what if I could be a billionaire of love? I want that. I don't care about a billion dollars. You know, I'll, I'll distribute. I'll use a billion dollars really well, but I don't want to own a billion dollars. I want to own a billion. billion I want to be a billionaire of love.
0: <laughs> what a smile, too, hey? Oh, I want to meet the guy. Um, sounds a lot like Shalom, doesn't it? It, it could be also because he's uh, from Jewish heritage. Uh, Hopefully inspiring, hopefully agitating, Um, may it lead to some action. So, let's consider some practices. What are tangible steps that we might take? What could it look like to become billionaires of meaning and purpose and even love? I think one word that comes to mind is to ask, to ask specifically a, a new set of questions that invite our participation in a clean economy one that's in alignment with God's vision for the future. So Joel, Joel Solomon, you heard him say that clean money is examined money. And so here's some tangible questions we could ask. Where do you earn money to consider that? Where do you hold money? Where do you grow money? What are your investments and savings? Where do you spend money? And for each of those questions, you can delve one level deeper and ask, what people does it value? And does it value preserving the earth and how? Ask a new set of questions. So invite us into that. Uh, ask and also to act. And here we could even start by returning to our text in Jeremiah 29 and just do the do's that are clearly laid out in that text to build homes, plant gardens, eat what they produce. You may not be able to build, but you can rent, you can share rent, you contribute to the city's economy, plant yourself in a neighborhood. Put down roots, literally plant a garden or join a community one and eat what it produces. Whatever kind of household you're part of, be a family, invest in the city, flourish in all directions, work toward the common good. We're, we're here, not here to live above the city with this mentality that kind of says, you know, this world's not my home at the end of the day and just passing through. Neither are we to simply exist in the city, benefiting from all it has to offer, seeking our own welfare without contributing anything to the good of the whole. So here's the thing. We can do this better in groups than we can merely as individuals. So join a neighborhood group. Let's keep committing ourselves to the outward direction, whether you're in one or not. Let's keep finding creative ways to channel our assets towards serving the common good within our city. Some specifics. Invest through social impact or mission-oriented investment funds. My goodness. Make socially and environmentally responsible purchases. When we choose to buy ethical clothing or to buy on consignment, we look out for God's world. We look out for God's people. And when we decrease our gas budget, you guys, we do the same thing. So, really, the call is to start small. Can I just switch now? Yeah, everyone's saying half an hour ago we could have done that. Okay, hi. So, starting small, the possibilities literally are endless. I think we can converse. So, in other words, have conversations that force you to answer your new set of questions. Engage your neighborhood group in a conversation about money, where yours is, what it's doing, who it's impacting. Find a group of people with whom to brainstorm ways that we can make simple and practical practical and achievable changes in our finances and spending. Another way we can enter the conversation is by doing some reading, by listening to some of these great authors who are writing about stewarding finances for the common good. So Joel Salman's book, Clean Money Revolution, Lynn Twist, The Soul of Money, Anand Giridharadas, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, Mark and Lisa Skandrit's book, Free, So we to ask and act and converse and pray. Let's not miss this part. Seek the shalom of the city. Pray to the Lord for it. Prayer is our working method. So what might it mean to pray to the Lord for the city, for all our cities around the globe? So to pray is to do a number of things. It's to confess that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That we are merely stewards and custodians. To pray is to remember that our good desire and longing to see shalom characterize the world in increasing measure is simply a reflection of God's desire for the same thing. To pray is to recognize that shalom is God's idea and God's intent. It's to actively trust that we couldn't possibly want this more than God does. To pray is to acknowledge that a merely human-engineered solution to our broken economy will not be enough. To pray is to name, as often as we do it, that even with our high degree of capacity and ingenuity as people, we are ultimately dependent on God for any change that will be lasting and real. For example, the change of our very hearts and minds, including those of us with vast wealth and power to direct it any way we choose. To pray is to name helplessness and desperation. It's good news in scripture. God loves answering the prayers of the helpless and the desperate. To pray is to hold fast to the hope that history is indeed headed toward the renewal of all things, including our relationship with money. To pray is to practice the open-handedness that we sang about, that we that we aspire toward every time we say the words there's nothing we have that we have not received, that all we have and are belong to God through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Just a few blocks away from us, that direction, a large neon sign hangs on the corner of Camby and Hastings with these four words, let's heal the divide. Let's heal the divide. The building it hangs on sits at the border of the financial district in the downtown east side. I'm grateful for artist Tony Latour, who created this piece out of yellow neon. It's a reminder to, every time we walk past, to be aware of what's around us, to remember injustice, to participate in healing it. So whether she intended it to be or not, her artwork echoes the words of the poet, prophet Jeremiah, when he said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Seek its shalom. It also echoes the writer of Hebrews, who began concluding his letter with this appeal. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Let's Heal the Divide is ultimately an echo of God's heart. The God who's at work in the world, in our worlds, reconciling all things to himself in Christ. So this series on financial imagination is coming to an end. But in many ways, I hope we feel we've just begun opening up a new conversation. Let's keep it going. Let's keep uh, helping one another. Let's keep offering resources. Let's keep having, agitating, and activating conversations. Let's keep reading and growing together. Let's join God in the renewal of all things in this way. It's a brief moment of silence, and then I'd like to offer a prayer to conclude, and we'll come to the table together and uh, receive the body and blood of Christ. spirit of Christ, we need your help. We invite your help. We ask for your ongoing vision and direction and courage to practice, to make changes, um, to become a a reality in our experience. We thank you, God, that for the vision of Shalom that this is your intent, this is your heart for us and for all people. I pray, God, that you continually draw, uh, draw and change our hearts in this regard, that we would think better about the economy, um, think better about our resources, think better about what our money is doing, where it's going, who it's impacting, and how we can truly join in your purposes and work toward the common good in our world. Again, thank you that uh, this is ultimately your idea and we can join you in it. Thank you for the examples that, we, that exist, that are tangible illustrations of how this is working, how it can change things. And we thank you ultimately for uh, your gift to us of your son, your sacrifice on our behalf. So as we come to the table together, we remind ourselves of uh, this central meal, this central event in our story and in our faith. And we thank you for being present with us. Thank you for welcoming us. In the name of Christ, amen.